Hello, and welcome to Behind the Scaffolding, a podcast where we talk to writing teachers about the hows and whys of what we do in the classroom. Coming to you from the University of Michigan, I'm Gina Brandolino. And I'm Angie Berkeley. Okay, Gina, today we're going to share a conversation about a topic that I know has been on both of our minds and on lots of teachers' minds over the past few years. It's a hot topic. You and I have talked about it a bunch, and I know I've talked about it with other teacher friends too, and that's contract grading. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's fair to say that you and I have felt both skeptical and excited about the potential of this alternative way of assessing writing in our classes. Labor-based grading contracts have been touted as the key to anti-racist teaching or as a way to help our students value what they're actually writing more than the grade they're earning or even just a way to help us, well, let's just say dislike grading less. Right, right. All of that stuff and more even. So we were curious. And so to get the skinny on this practice, we talked to our colleague and behind the scaffolding alum, April Conway. April works with undergraduate and graduate students at the Sweetland Center for Writing. She teaches courses on writing pedagogy, new media and nonprofits, and first year writing. She likes to incorporate storytelling, comics, audio compositions, and primary research into her courses. Now, April has developed an assessment system inspired by labor-based contract grading in her writing classes at Sweetland, and she was full of insights and observations about how and why and when it works well or less well, and for what purposes. So after talking with April, Angie, are you more skeptical or more excited about alternative assessment? Well, I think I'd have to say excited, but more so excited about the possibility of adapting it and making it my own, which April has definitely done, and excited about thinking about it really seriously with my own classes and students in mind, which this conversation definitely helped me do. Okay, let's have a listen. Hi, April, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us on Behind the Scaffolding. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, So we're going to talk today about contract grading, and we know that you use it in your classes. And so we wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about what was going on in your classes and in your teaching that led you to try this method out. Yeah, um, I guess I'm actually going to go a little farther back than that, which and then a a jump to that, which is um, like when I was an undergraduate student, I was part of a program where we did, we experienced alternative assessment. So we would, you know, sometimes we would get letter grades on our projects and stuff like that, but we got a lot of more like um, written feedback and oral feedback, but instead of a letter grade at the end of the course, we would get a written evaluation. So we got these like narrative evaluations from all of our instructors. And I think that that was really influential to me Um, So that when I did become a teacher and after teaching for, you know, maybe like eight years, um, I started hearing about contract grading and it just made a lot of sense to me because traditional grading and trying to figure out like, what is the difference between a a B minus and a B plus or a B plus and an A minus just like, I could never really like square that in my head and it just, I don't know. It just, it seemed very like carrot and stick type of assessment that just didn't really resonate with me. And it it seemed to encourage for students that were really 
strong students, like it would motivate them in a way that maybe um, like they could write really well, but like, what were they doing creatively and like sort of pushing themselves beyond what maybe both them and I thought like interesting writing could be. Cause I was also trained as like, this is what like an A paper looks like. And then of course it's like, impacting students who um who don't have strong educational or English backgrounds or the time in their lives to be writing in a way where they're not going to be punished by the grading system and before teaching at um, BGSU where I was a grad student and then the University of Michigan I taught at community colleges and high schools where it was a lot of students who we're not getting good grades because of environmental circumstances. And so I think to that prior experience, even though I moved into more like elite student populations that I was also carrying with me and and still seeing some of those students. And I just kind of wanted to equalize the playing field, I guess, a little bit more. So that's a long answer, but it's all very holistic and was swirling around when I made the decision. It's interesting what you say about um, the importance of written feedback because a few episodes back when we had Lewis on talking about um, marking papers, he wouldn't let it, I don't think he would let us call the episode grading papers. Am I right? He's like, not grading, marking papers. Only marking. <laughs> um, Lewis talked about how like, he didn't even really care about the grade when he was a student. He just wanted the, the kind, he wanted to know that somebody had engaged with his writing um, and to, to read that engagement. Um, and so it's something we've talked about um, on the podcast before, but I also wonder, do you feel like in this era when we don't hand back, we very rarely hand back physical papers, do you feel like students are still sort of checking in on written feedback? Like, do you get the impression that students do read this contract rating help, help with that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I build into my teaching um, opportunities where they should be reading my feedback because they have to go through multiple revisions, um, revise based on those revisions, and then also like reflect on the feedback I provided. So they write like, you know, reflective cover letters where they're supposed to be referencing the written feedback or oral feedback they've received from me and their peers. And of course, students can shortcut that too. and so I, basically, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And I think that is another part of, anyways, I, I won't get ahead of myself. But yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sure we'll get to the rest of it. But I mean, it's something that I think Angie and I wonder about all the time. Like, are they even, you know, are they even reading these comments? And incentivizing the reading of the comments is smart. So Well, all right, so the next thing that uh, we wanted to ask you about was sort of the nuts and bolts of your your system. Can you talk about like the details of how you implement contract grading in your classrooms? Yeah, and it's definitely been an evolution. And I started this when I started at the University of Michigan, which is five years ago now. And when I first started, it was, you know, based almost exactly like borrowing from a sow in a way who's one of the major like contract grading scholars in the field um and just 
you know, like a student who was practicing the writing of authors they admire. I was practicing the assessment practices of a scholar I admire. So I used a lot of his. So I'm going to talk instead more about where I am now with that. But um, he does labor contracting where students have to do, um, they do a certain amount of labor and you get a B in the class. And then um, if you want to get a higher end of the course grade, you do additional labor to earn that higher grade. Or if your grade starts to slip, you do extra labor so that you can raise your final course grade. And so that's where I was at. But I've since read criticism of that approach, which is looking at how you know labor is not um, is not an equal playing field in different students' lives either, based on their caretaking or again working responsibilities. Also, how there's critiques of like different learning styles and you know if yeah whatever. And so like labor isn't the best way to sort of um, create a system in which you're trying to equitize like learning and, and assessment. And so I think what I'm going to try next year is I'm going to talk about something that I haven't even tried yet, but I've sort of been shedding some of those labor practices and I don't even call it a, a contract grade anymore. Like I used to have students sign the syllabus saying I agree to this and it just felt too transactional, which already higher ed kind of feels like a little bit anyways. And so instead I'm, I'm borrowing the term from Ellen Carrillo, who um, uses the term um, engagement syllabus. So it's the idea of wanting to foster a lot of the um, um, important ideas of grading contracts and other types of alternative assessment, which is like focusing on the learning, not the letter grade as like this carrot and stick thing. <clears throat> anyway, so an engagement syllabus is you, it, it, the way I'm going to practice it is like, yes, you do this certain amount of work. What I think would be work that would demonstrate that you have um, learned or worked through the course objectives, and then you get an A. Um, and, you know, if you're getting, if you're demonstrating in the assignments, and if you're participating in a myriad of ways, you'll get an A in the course. And then I will provide alternative assessments for students who are facing in their life circumstances where at certain moments they cannot engage in the work to learn, to meet those course goals, and then those assignments will be there, which maybe some people would say, well, that's, that's extra credit, and sure, maybe it is, but it, it's the idea of um, you all are going to be working through these assignments. Um, I should be seeing growth um, uh, across the semester in all of you, but you're all starting at different places, and you're going to end in different places at the end of the course. Um, yeah. Of course, there's more to that too, but I'll stop talking. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That the whole, I'm really intrigued to learn that there's about what you're telling us about the criticism of like labor as a measure, because that was something that I always was always sort of a sticking point with me too, with the system was not exactly, I mean, I see what you're saying about how it isn't equal for everyone because of various situations, but also, um, it's, it's a hard thing. I always thought like it's a hard thing to judge in a way, which is maybe the same thing um, when you're doing assessment. Um, and it's, yeah, well, and it's not equal for everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. In all kinds of ways. Um, maybe, could you give us like an example 
of like what like like what's what's one or two things a student would have to do to earn the A and then what would like an alternative be like an alternative assignment for someone who's having trouble for whatever reason like engaging in that way yeah I mean so you know I think some people think like when you talk about alternative assessment practices like um, contract grading or um, ungrading like there's less rigor there but for my my system there isn't like students have to do all of the assignments with very few exceptions and all of those assignments are scaffolded up on top of each other. So it's not like I'm giving them busy work, right? So they have to work through what I think are and are hopefully like these projects to again have them build up to the course objectives. And I have as clear and as descriptive assignment descriptions and rubrics designed for you know low stakes and high stakes assignments to try to communicate to students like these are um, uh, these are the course objectives and these are the that you will be working towards for these assignments. Um, and so they have they have to pass those rubrics. So there's still some judgment there. Like I'm still determining, like, are you meeting these course objectives by checking off the rubric criteria? And again, it's still going to look different from student to student. So they work through all the assignments they have to get as many, like there's a certain like ratio of how many assignments you can not pass or pass in order to um, participate in the class. And then that'll be an A. Um, and then there's also participation too, which again, like I said, looks differently. Like it's not like I'm keeping track of who is talking in class and you get participation points for that. Um, and then alternative assessments are ones I'm just gonna like carry over from when I did the labor contract, but it's ways for their projects that again are are demonstrating thought with the course objectives and are contributing to the students and their peers learning so they've had to like teach a mini lesson before you know because multimodality is so important to Sweetland and EWP um, first year writing courses they can create like an uh, an extra multimodal project and write a reflection about the multimodal decisions they've made I've started doing this semester other things like what I what I'm calling mutual aid which I got from um, academic Twitter my favorite space on Twitter so it's the idea of like how do you participate in ways and build communities in ways in classrooms and across universities so it could be like <clears throat> helping a classmate edit their work when it's not a, a peer review assignment in the class or like teaching the student how to use like, um, I don't know, Photoshop because it's part of their assignment and, um, or doing extra peer review um, work in the class in a more traditional way too. So those are some of the ideas. That's really cool. I love the mutual aid idea. And I, I mean, this reminds me of something like a little bit that I've read about some of these other like contract grading practices. They actually have like a big part of it is community and like they actually have a lot of um peer evaluation like the peers evaluate each other do you do anything like that no that's cool i'd love to hear more about it other than just on their writing no well you know for group projects for the first time for like a writing 200 class i did do that but yeah no that sounds cool 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like a little bit that I was reading about with Inouye's, like they um, she talks about like revisiting the contract, like again and again and again, mm-hmm. and like the assessment stuff. Can you can you say a little bit about that? Do you don't do anything like that where like students like do they have input into it, or is it something that you're just like here it is, this is what we're doing? Yeah, I'm definitely not as uh, open as he is to it, but I do. Like around midterm, I do a um, informal anonymous like Qualtrics survey where I'm like, what's something supporting your learning in the class and what's something that could improve your learning in the class? And then I, I sort of collate the answers and present it back to the students. And then if there are things that show up in that um, this is not supporting my learning in the class and it, and it makes sense to me and there maybe is like a consensus about it, then I, I will change something in my syllabus to better reflect the students. But I have thought about maybe being a little more, um, yeah, returning to that part of alternative assessment where you, it, you involve the students even more than what I'm already doing. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, that is key, I think. Mm-hmm. How do they do with it? Like, do they understand it generally? Do they, does it take a lot in order to sort of help them like embrace it and kind of get, understand how it works? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think, too, I think, I think too, it depends on the students and it just depends on the course. Like for example, with that writing 200 course I taught this semester, A, it was the first time I taught the course. I was making new changes to my, engagement syllabus but also many of the students were like not first year students so they know the game of college even better and so when I got my end of the term evaluations there was you know there was a good like quarter or third of the class that was like oh I wish (laughs) I wish this like assessment system had been explained a little bit more I mean everyone in the class got an A except for one student so it like worked out for all of them but I can understand how there's a lot of uncertainty because most of them are never going to experience that again in their college career. Um, And especially there is research out about how very strong students who have been strong students their whole life, they often struggle with it the most because they're like, we know how this works. And I want, I want the grades that I see because I know how this works and that's very fulfilling to me. And so the feedback that I usually get is from students who are like, I, I've never, I feel like I could take risks in ways I haven't before. I, I haven't enjoyed English before, but I felt like there was the opportunity to be more creative and, and stuff like that. And so, and I think that that is, um, that appears in the research too, how it sort of shakes out between which types of students seem to respond to it better. Yeah, I mean, I wonder about that too. I've done like contract grading light is what I would call it in some of my classes in my upper level writing class. And uh, it's, I've noticed sort of similar, similar things, you know, like students talking about like the freedom um, to take risks and things that it gives them, but then some really strong students being like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. And sort of some resistance in terms of that. Um, But so you've sort of talked about this question a little bit already, but could you say a little bit more about um, some of the other benefits or some of the pitfalls with this system that you didn't anticipate um, when you started it? Yeah, I mean, a benefit selfishly for me is like just not mentally having to deal with the grades and the points and uh, the percentages. I mean, again, it just like 
I mean, I'm not a like numbers person, so maybe that's part of it, but I just can never reconcile with it. And like, it just does not make sense to me. And so I just, I feel a lot more freedom as a teacher to be like, I'm moving this aside. I'm going to focus on, yeah, what kind of written or oral feedback I'm going to give. I'm going to be, I can put more energy into developing like other parts of my pedagogy um, and not get weighed down by seeing like all these points appear in my like grade book and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And just, I've been so, um, pleased when I do get positive feedback from students. Cause I'm like, this is what I want it to do for you. And it is working for you. Um, yeah. And it's just I like stop you there for yeah. a second. Cause I yeah. sort of have a question about, about that, because I feel like one of the things that people often say about contract grading or think about contract grading is that it is easier and it takes some of the anxiety that teachers feel or the sort of heart-wrenching aspect of grading out of grading. But mm. well, so first of all, is that what you're talking about? But and second of all, doesn't it also create a sort of bigger potential crisis if a student doesn't do the work that the student sort of signs up for? Does this make any sense? Like yeah. if the student decides I'm going to sign up to get X grade um, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to I'm going to sort of whiff on, you know, 50 percent of my work and then you have to intervene. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, let me not hide the football here. I'm very suspicious of contract grading. I think Angie is sort of experimenting with contract grading. Yeah. Like she's 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 bought. Um, some aspects of it, but this is the part that I, that hangs me up because it's bad enough when you're just giving out grades and that happens. I can't imagine like entering into an agreement with students and then having them go back on it. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, I guess this, I didn't make this clear when I was talking about how I don't practice contract grading because, and I never did this actually. I was never like, um, uh, okay, sign up at the beginning of the semester for this grade you want, and then you're going to sign your name to it. I had students sign my grading contracts, like you've read this, and you at least kind of understand the system. Because that is something that has never made sense to me either, especially for first-year writing courses, which are the majority of the courses I've taken, where students are walking into college. It's completely overwhelming in so many ways. Here's a, here's a class they maybe don't want to take that they have to take. Here's a new grading system. Um, you don't know how college courses work. I'm asking you on the, like, in the first week of class to say, this is the grade I want. Like, that has just never made any sense to me. So rather, students are yeah. moving through the semester, doing the work. Um, they have to keep track of, like, where, what their standing is. That can take a lot of energy, too, because they are learning this new system of assessment and then I have to, you know, I'm sort of checking in with them because they want to be able to look at the Canvas grade book and like see that letter grade at the end. But instead, they're having to keep track of like how many completes do I have and stuff like that. So it does take work on my end for that. Um, so that's an, that's one of the adjustments that you've made, it sounds yeah. like when when you're OK. So so there isn't this sort of automatic thing. that no, happens. But I guess and also to your point about like, is it <clears throat> disappointing? pointing you know like if a student you like like do I hope this system will serve all students well of course I do 
I mean, all teachers want whatever system they use to serve them well. But I guess I'm also at a point in my teaching where I like don't take it personally anymore, where it's like I'm going to do the best I can from my end as a teacher to make you excited about learning or at least to try and get you through this required course that you have to take and and you're learning something. If you are just not in a place of interest or ability to get this end of the term grade that you want, I mean, I'm going to be as flexible as possible because I have the ability to do so in a lot of ways. You know, I teach few classes that are very small, but I'm just sort of at the point where I'm like, students are making the decisions they have and if they don't pass the class or if they don't get an A, I've done everything I can to get them to that point and then I can't do anything else, so. Yeah, when all the students do get an A, that's not a reflection of them gaming the system. It's a reflection of them all sort of engaging and finding a way in. I think so. But again, it's, I think some students might think they're gaming the system. I think some of them do. And because I know some students are not putting in the same amount of effort as other students. But still, um, I'm like, I am still assessing student work on this rubric and the assignment description. So it's like you are learning something and, and, and you've arrived at this, even if you don't look like this. And again, they've, you know, our director has done research where it shows that like in first year writing courses at Sweetland, whether or not students are in contract grading courses or not, nearly everyone is getting an A. So the system is already like, what is, what is it anyways, you know? Fully gamed, fully gamed already, <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll, let me just say this one last thing. It, do, it kind of doesn't matter if the student thinks they're gaming the system. If they do, fine. If, they're, if they happen to learn something while they think that, that's kind of what matters, right? So like, they don't have to have a special feeling about it for it to, you know, for it to work. Um, they just have to do the learning. The thing that you mentioned, April, about how in most classes, first year writing classes, students are getting A's, you know, which suggests that the A, the B, the C is not as um, precise, you know, as we like to think it is like, that's, I feel that in my own classes. And that's what's really pushing me to think more about contract grading and like, think more about like, what, what could be more meaningful, because it doesn't really, you know, right now, the grades don't really feel that meaningful to me. I mean, in the contract thing, the reason the signing of the contract for a particular grade didn't make sense to me, like never really made sense to me, was, um, first of all, I think all of our students would mm-hmm. contract yeah. from A. <laughs> well, and I didn't really see how it was any different from a traditional syllabus, because it's it like if the syllabus is transparent enough, it's clear what mm-hmm. you need to do to get an A. Right? I mm-hmm. mean, or it could be. Um, and it, you either do it or you don't. Yeah. And if you don't do it, you know, then you get less than an A. I think, right? I think it, I mean, part of like contract grading is like, it's part of this whole ecology of assessment. And that comes from us out in a way. It, it's like, you know, it's not just like, here's the contract grade or syllabus and that's it. It's also like, like I was talking about, and, and you said it too, what is the transparency across the whole pedagogy in your rubrics and your assignment descriptions and the feedback you're providing and the activities you're doing in class so they can do the learning. You know, it's not like the syllabus is the one thing that makes the contract reading. You have to be doing all this other stuff. Right. 
I guess the other thing that I wonder about too, so you have rubrics for each assignment, right? For each task that are tied to the, I assume like the learning objectives for the class, right? And so all you're deciding, as I understand it, is like, did they meet the, like, did they do it or did they not do it? Like, did they attain like whatever word you want to use, like proficiency or, or whatever. Um, But is that, does that ever feel, I, I guess I suspect like one of my skepticisms is that like making that decision would feel just as hard as, well, is it an A? you know, like, or is it a B plus? Yeah, it, it can feel difficult sometimes. Again, also when I'm like looking at students that are like, you know, it's like this, like, like one is clearly like, they're a better writer. Like you still cannot take that away, but, but still then it, but the extra step is that like sorting for me that like, just doesn't make sense of like, and this one gets these points and this one gets this points, but you know, you know, it's like, okay, this is an A minus and this is a B minus. So that suggests in that system, both students are learning, but then there's the extra categorization on top of it that I don't want to do. And I don't want to be spinning their wheels about. Um, Yeah. One of the things that Angie and I have wondered about is this, does this style of grading work best or perhaps exclusively with skills-based learning? Or can it also work with content? That is to say, so for instance, right now, I'm learning to weld. I'm not good at it at all. Um, But when I go in and practice, I do get better, right? And I probably get better at a slower rate than somebody who doesn't have a day job or, you know, like somebody who's sort of unnatural at welding. But, you know, what I hear you saying is you don't sort of... uh, penalize the person like me who's working hard and learning not sort of a natural right does that work too when you have to like memorize the bones of the human body is there is there only one arena the skills-based learning where this works um yeah I mean I certainly think like well, I guess when you talk about learning the bones of the body, I think of like doctors. And so I'm like, certainly there's going to be different stakes. <laughs> like you, you want your, you want your doctors to um, like pass all the tests and stuff like that, you know, but I guess, you know, like in college, which is very different than like going to medical school and becoming a doctor. I think um, I, I guess my short answer is like, I think alternative assessment can work within the context that is learning, which is college, which is K through 12 education. And then, um, so I don't know if that's answering your question or not, but. Well, I mean, so I guess behind this question is the fact that I teach literature classes, you know, that often have a fact-based element, right? And like, either you do know when the, um, whatever, you know, when Queen Elizabeth died, mm-hmm. or you don't, right? Either you do know when Geoffrey Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales, or you don't. And I mean, like, we can say those things don't mm-hmm. matter. But like, when we sort of unmoor literature from history, it becomes very disturbed, right? Then we start losing track of literary history, which is like a, a legacy thing, right? Like, we, we have to keep track of, you know, that's part of what makes us human, right? Is having those stories. So 
like, okay, the bones of the human body might have been a bad example. <laughs> yeah, no, your example makes sense. And I would say I would put that in the rubric. And it's like if students are not, you know, doing a literary analysis where they are connecting the social context to their, yeah. you know, analysis of the metaphor, then like, no, they didn't pass it. And maybe some students have to do more work to get to that point. But yeah, no, then they wouldn't pass the assignment. I see. So. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, that does make sense. But it makes me think too, though. I mean, do you do you think or not um, that what's important for like a first year writing class that there are things like equivalent to when Queen Elizabeth died? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Did you know how did you and implying like did you <laughs> like? Do write a thesis that does x y and z and then if it's like no then all right cool you get you can revise it but no that means your paper did not pass yeah that totally makes yeah. sense yeah, yeah. I, i'm just curious like how uh often <laughs> do students need to like go back and revise and can they do that sort of un for an unlimited number of tries yeah um, I, yeah, I guess I'm thinking of like, you know, my, my writing 100 class this past semester, which had five students, by the way, which again, makes it really easy to do this type of, <laughs> oh man, that's dreamy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of weird. Um, but they were, they were great. They, they made the best of it anyways, but yeah, they often had to go back and revise, but, and they did it though. Like, the more the, they would revise multiple times and um um what okay what was your other question <laughs> sorry I'm like daydreaming about my students um <laughs> no that was it I think yeah and then they can revise as many times as they want but there is sort of like a time limit so like I, I put in my syllabus like students have two weeks until after um they get feedback from me to do revisions I have to be sticking to that because then I get really overwhelmed, but, but it's a way to make again, sort of like the learning meaningful because everything's scaffolded on top of each other. Um, if, if you're waiting until the end of the semester and you're working on assignment number two, when we're on assignment number four, like. I really like how that makes due dates, not arbitrary. Like, because, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I think that could make clear sense to students that everything's scaffolded, everything builds on itself. You know, you need to do it by this day because I need time to give you feedback and so on and so forth. I just, I want to read, sorry, I'm, I'm obsessed with my own question and I want to return to it for a minute to say, so like what you, your answer about can 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 this style of grading? I don't want to call it contract grading because I realize that you've um, adjusted it. This can this style of grading work with the kinds of um, facts based skills that I'm talking about, or facts based learning that I'm talking about? Your answer totally made sense to me, and sort of uh, the scales fell away from my eyes when I was thinking about the the courses I teach which have this fact-based component but I still I think um for instance a mat like a, a course in which there is a more black and white right answer like a math course or something right like there could be 
a component of this style of grading, but this, this style of grading seems to work best when you're trying to build something that's a, like that exists in more of a gray area that that isn't so black and white in terms of correctness right but that where improvement comes in shades of gray okay yeah i mean i would love to talk to people in other disciplines about this because i feel like i've only really talked about it with people who teach writing um but my understanding um, is sort of like the idea of like alternative assessment and ungrading is ultimately is like trying to have students appreciate the process of learning. And again, it's it like, it, it should always come back, like assessment is part of pedagogy. So it should always come back to what is your pedagogy and is that pedagogy supporting student learning, whether or not you're using a traditional assessment or not. And so I, I don't know, I'm just like making this up, but I think it's like a math teacher is like creating a classroom where they are providing learning opportunities, whatever that might mean and, and feedback um, that is useful to students where they are seeing students learn, even if it takes some students longer to like get the theorem. I, I don't know, <laughs> it's like using math, I don't know. Um, then, then hopefully students would be um, more successful. And me, and I think it comes back to, and I, you know, I like mentioned this in my job talk too, just like just approaching teaching and learning like where it's slower. So it's also like, what are your course objectives? What are you hoping to see students walk in with, leave with? But can't like, do you do you, can you make adjustments on either end? And then what do you do in the middle? So. I mean, I wonder if like the question you're asking Gina or wondering about, maybe it's not, but one of the things I think that I have often wondered about, but that I think is maybe just somehow if I could just shift my like thinking about this, it would, I would, I don't know, the scales would drop from my eyes or something. Well, but it would be the thing, one of the things that I always like hesitate about is if like is in this system, is it possible for a student to leave the class with an A and think, I got it when they don't have it. <laughs> like when they don't have what they need to, like if we mm -hmm. use like first year writing as an example, like if they, if they are not going to be able to, you know, respond to a question about, you know, the history of I don't know, Rome using evidence from the text. You know what I mean? Just like to use a sort of simple example, mm -hmm. like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, if like a student is repeatedly not doing that, like if they're in, you know, if just like most of their assessments are like, or projects, excuse me, assignments are getting incompletes because they are not doing that, then they're not going to pass the class. Like if, if it happens on a few assignments, then they will pass the class. Um, but in, the hope is that in, there have been another, enough other opportunities where they have done that thing that when they go into another class, they will be able to also do the same. But also I think it's, you know, thinking too about how like learning operates broadly, which is like, um, it's recursive. And, you know, I see this in like, about graduate student writing so like 
graduate students arrive in their PhD programs, obviously they've been selected for very specific reasons or very learners and students, students and they know how to play the game. And yet often PhD students like backslide in their writing skills because they are learning new content, new genres of writing. Um, and then it takes them a while to like catch up again. And so, and, and so I, I, I don't know if that analogy makes sense, but I think that's going to be happening even more so in like undergraduate courses where it's like a bigger pool of students with different skill levels that are moving from discipline to discipline, asked to be doing so many different types of writing or learning. And so there's gonna be a lot of recursivity um, and they're gonna have to, you know, it's the idea of like habit, you learn things through habit and practice. And so it's gonna, it's not gonna happen in a first year writing course anyways. Like they're gonna have to experience those practices again and again and again. And it's not gonna look exactly the same in their courses anyway. So they're gonna have to practice adaptability to see like, what does it mean to gather evidence and make a claim based on that evidence in all of these different ways, if that makes sense. I feel um, that this kind of assessment acknowledges that learning, which I think we have understood in the past is sort of like downloading a program, right? Or like, uh, like pack, packing a box full of knowledge isn't like downloading a program or on like packing up a box. It's, it is more complicated and takes longer and you can take a class and learn some things, but maybe you will keep learning on that same knowledge. And that's indeed the goal, right? Not to sort of get you all filled up with knowledge and send you on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I think all of the stakeholders and education, students, parents, administrators, teachers, like at some level do it have that picture in their head, which I think leads to that transactional experience of higher ed sometimes. And it's just really disappointing. Yeah. I mean, if, if I may, you also asked about pitfalls. And if I could say one thing about pitfalls, which is like, I also approached, I started doing contract grading and this type of alternative assessment is like an anti-racist part of my pedagogy, but there is also critique about that. There's a really good short piece can't remember the name of the scholar, but she's a, like a, a black female scholar. And, and she's like, your contract grading ain't it. I think that's the title of her essay. And it's like, you know, if there's just these pockets of alternative assessment that are meant to combat racism in these institutions that are racist, like your one class is not going to achieve that. I mean, I, not that I think shouldn't be, I shouldn't be doing this assessment with these goals of anti-racism, but there's just, it's not like this silver bullet or anything like that, so. Yes, I have thought of that too. I mean, and in terms of like other classes, like what is the effect of this going to be if my class is this way and all of their other classes are the usual way? Yeah. Like what's yeah. the effect gonna be? I mean, and what you're saying about the anti-racist thing too, I think I have a similar dilemma in my mind constantly about the teaching of standardized English too. I mean, and I think that's that's like gained a lot more traction and, and things, you know, across the university, hopefully, you know, that that's not a marker of intelligence and it's not a marker of all these things, but it's still, it still exists. And so I always think like, if I'm not paying attention to that in my classes, if I'm not teaching that, if I'm not helping students learn that, like, am I, 
doing them a disservice in a way, even if, you know, if I'm the only one who's saying it's okay, you know, like I'm not, I'm not marking your grammar. I don't know. We can cut this part. This is sort of a side thing, but, <laughs> but anyway, it sort of, it reminds me of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's related. It's, it is one piece of a bigger puzzle. Yeah. Well, I think Angie and I like sort of ran away with your benefits and pitfalls question. Was there anything else you wanted to, um, <laughs> you wanted benefits or pitfalls you wanted to talk about? Yeah, no, I, no, I, that's, that's good. <laughs> okay. All right. Good enough. I feel like we covered a lot. Um, I think we did. Yeah. I mean, we touched on a little bit, like our other question, I guess, is about, um, like in Inouye's work, if I'm not mistaken, like his his institution where he started doing this was like not the population of students. They were not as like it wasn't an elite institution, is that mm -hmm. correct? And mm -hmm. like and the students right. were more at risk. And you mentioned like using like working in community colleges and like high schools and stuff, and like it was much different than the population here at the U of M or like at Bowling Green. Um, could you just talk about that a little bit about like how like how it works with students like ours who are, as I said, always going to contract for the A <laughs> and who like, who know the game of college and things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So there was, again, like Ellen Perillo who critiqued Asao in a way that was some of her critique where she, and then she, she took it a step further. Also, he was not working at a predominantly white university where that um, his data came from, but like mm -hmm. a majority of his students of color still did not get an A in his course, despite the, the contract grading effort and things like that. So it's like students at our university, like a predominantly white university, like top 10, whatever, like they are going to do great. The majority of them are going to do great no matter what the um, assessment system is. Like, um, so it is like, maybe that is another pitfall is like how equitizing is it if like, you know, if you're already in a place where like many of the students are already gonna do really well. Um, and, and those students who already are at various disadvantages are going to be struggling no matter what. But I want students who have benefited from traditional assessment systems to hopefully enjoy my assessment system that again is tied to a larger pedagogy because I think a lot of those students, um, you know, they get so stressed out because they're like perfectionists, very A-type students. And so they like kill themselves to get an A and then, um, and then it totally stresses them out. And it's like, can we experience learning differently? And something else that has come up and I think some, you know, which is like, well, does that mean some students are blowing off your class because they have more and, and they're not prioritizing your class and stuff like that because there's more flexibility. And for, again, I, I return to the point where it's like, that's fine. Like, why do I want to be one of those teachers in courses that's going to stress them out? I rather, you know, because I still have these standards. It's not like I'm like, A for you, A for you, like the Oprah Winfrey gif and stuff like that. Like, car for you, car for you, A for you. It's like, um, yeah, it's like, that's fine. I don't want to stress them out. And they can, my course can be the last priority as long as they're still learning. So one final question. Um, April, do you have any advice for teachers who are thinking about trying out alternative modes of assessment? Yeah, I think doing some like deep reflection about 
what, why you want to do it. And then like your own assessment of like, what are your current assessment practices um, and do a little bit of research about what are some possibilities of alternative assessment and see if you can triangulate them. But like starting with your values as a teacher, like why is it that you want to do this and how can you adapt what you're already doing and then take some good practices from research that is widely available and put those together. And I don't know if you guys post anything on your website, like, um, like materials to each episode, but I found this really great um, sort of like list of heuristics that this um, PhD scholar put in her dissertation. And it's like um, a bunch of questions that um, teachers can ask themselves to do the self-reflection as they're embarking or revisiting their alternative um, assessment practices. If, if you're interested, I can email that to you. Yes, that would be great. We would love that. Yeah, cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Okay, that's it for this episode of Behind the Scaffolding. I know it gave us lots to think about and listeners, we hope you can say the same. Thanks to the Podcasting the Humanities Virtual Institute, which I attended last summer and which is facilitated by the National Humanities Center in cooperation with San Diego State University. And especially to Pam Lack, our virtual podcasting guru. And thanks to all of you for listening. <laughs>